Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Over the last three decades, Israel has seen its economy undergo a meteoric rise. Much of it has been fueled by the explosion of its startup and tech sector, including companies like the one where Tamar Sasserdoti works. In the early days of October, Tamar was working as the chief of staff for a legal tech startup called Darrow, unaware of how radically her life was about to change. On October 7th, we all woke up to kind of a complete shock. I was in my apartment in Tel Aviv with my fiancé, and all of a sudden, sirens went off, and very quickly we realized that there was something big going on. Hamas militants had stormed across the border into Israel and carried out a series of attacks. 1,200 people were killed, and over 200 were taken hostage, according to local officials. As the news came in, Tamar started to worry about her colleagues. My job, as you can understand as a chief of staff, is very wide. So I I deal with a lot of people. I'm with all the different teams. So initially, we just tried to make sure where everyone was and that everyone was okay. All of the employees, while while also trying to personally deal with anyone who potentially was in the area or affected. That was kind of the first day. And then the next week that ensued was a bit of structured chaos. Over the next few days, more than 300,000 Israelis were called up from the reserves to serve in the war. Among them were Tamar's company's CEO, half of the company's executive team, and dozens of other employees. It was just cut. Like, they literally, like, within 24 hours were unavailable. So 35 employees, how much of the company was that? About 40%. As Tamar herself was quick to point out, Her company is just one of many that has had to rapidly and radically adapt to new wartime realities. Today on the show, what the war in Gaza means for Israel's startup ecosystem and how it may reshape the country's entire economy. I'm your host, Sarah Holder, and this is The Big Take from Bloomberg News. In the three months since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, Israel and Hamas have been at war, and thousands of people have been killed. Israel has lost over 1,200 victims in the attack itself, and over 500 soldiers since October 7th, according to the Israeli military. Gaza has lost over 25,000 people, mostly Palestinian women and children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. It needs to be said that while the economic toll for Israel is calculable right now, And that's what we're discussing in this episode. The toll for Gaza continues to mount. Their economy and their infrastructure are still being decimated by this war. This is a deeply important story and a developing one, and we'll cover it more in subsequent episodes. But today, we dive deep into Israel's economy. To understand the cost of this war to Israel's economy, we spoke to Galit Altstein, who covers Israel's economy and government for Bloomberg from Tel Aviv. She says, to understand what's happening now, we need to go back in history. 
how would you characterize the Israeli economy at the time of the country's founding? So I'm not sure um, we would have to go back all the way to Israel's founding, which was in 1948. But I think a good point or a good time to go back to would be the mid-70s after um, the 1973 Yom Kippur War in which Israel was taken by surprise attack from Egypt in the south and Syria in the north. So after that, Israel's defense spending soared to as much as 30% of its GDP, and inflation also soared. So Israel's economy was much on the verge of collapse, I would say, in the mid-80s. And then what happened in 1985 was that a program was put into place. It was called the 1985 Stabilization Plan. And it included various um, steps like significant cuts in government expenditures, a significant cut in the government deficit, in um, wages, price controls were put into place, fixed foreign currency rates were, were put in place, and so forth. And I think one of the most important steps that was put in place that year was the central banks, the Bank of Israel's ability to print money, or rather it was forbidden to print money from then on to cover government deficit, right? So until then, Israel's central bank could just give the government as much money as it wanted to spend. And that was a very significant plan that basically, um, to put it simply, saved the Israeli economy. And by um, 1990, so five years after the stabilization plan, defense spending was way down to less than 15% of Israel's GDP. And by 2020, it had gone down to as little as 5% of the GDP. Inflation was completely tamed. All of this opened up a new era of prosperity for the Israeli economy. It took us 30 years to become uh, an instant success. This is Ari Strasberg, VP of Strategy at Startup Nation Central, a nonprofit organization that supports Israel's startup ecosystem. He joined us over Zoom from home. It's been a very long road in developing and driving the economic engine of, of this country. It really started in the 80s when we had the turnaround of Israel's economy. And then uh, in the early 90s, when the uh, we had the immigration of over one million Jewish people from the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union collapsed, you had a series of events that basically generated the Israeli innovation ecosystem, the technology companies. Galit also credits the emergence of a high-tech sector to Israel's military service requirements. In Israel, um, everyone who's 18, both boys and girls, men and women, they go to the army for two or three years. And then what happens is they're involved in, in various um, roles. Some of them are obviously combat roles, right? But then some of the other ones have to do with intelligence, with cybersecurity, cyber defense, etc. And then I would say that the Israeli army um, in many ways nurtures these people and these talents who later become the, the brains behind the Israeli high-tech. And many, you know, I wouldn't say that all, but a lot of Israeli high-tech talent is nurtured in the Israeli army, in the, in the military establishment. And all of this, the turnaround of Israel's economy, the immigration from the Soviet Union, the nurturing of tech talent in the Israeli military, has combined to create what Ari describes as a vibrant tech community in Israel. Today you have about 8,000 startups in Israel, all the way from the you know early seed companies to, uh, to unicorns. We're one of the most dense areas in the world with a number of unicorns. 
and, and a lot of parameters that you look at from an innovation perspective. And he says this growing Israeli startup scene also started to attract attention from companies outside the country. So over the last you know decade or two was a lot of multinational corporations coming to Israel and opening shop here and putting R&D centers, innovation centers in Israel. Apple, Google, Microsoft, all of them have some of their most sensitive and important R&D centers that are basically responsible for their future growth uh, as an organization, all here in Israel. This combination of Israeli startups and multinational corporations has really shaped Israel's economy. Innovation or technology is really our business plan. Um, We're not that diversified as other mature economies are. Tech now accounts for about 18% of Israel's GDP and more than half of its exports. And the sector has helped boost Israel's GDP per capita to what it is today, higher than that of France, the UK, and Japan. But recently, things started to shift. I would say since the beginning of 2023, it was starting to go into a slightly, I would say, downward trend. Now, this was because of several reasons. One of them, um, which I think is a global reason, was um, the high inflation, um, which, you know, we saw in many countries, in many Western countries, and the high interest rates that came with that. So that obviously put quite a bit of burden both on households and on Israeli businesses that had um, to pay more for funding, that had to pay um, more when they returned their loans, their mortgages, etc., And um, at the same time, at the beginning of 2023, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's sixth government came into power. And right away, right after they came into power in January 2023, they introduced a judicial overhaul, which was, to to put it briefly, was aimed at weakening the power of judges, um, which the government thought was, was too much. And that brought on mass protests, and it actually brought to the establishment of Israel's largest ever protest movement. So Israel saw, before October 7th, it saw mass protests every week, every Saturday night, sometimes even more than once a week on the streets. And that brought a lot of political turmoil and social turmoil and a lot of uncertainty, which we know that the economy doesn't like. That, combined with the high interest rates, had already made things much harder, both for households and for businesses. After the break, with trouble brewing before the war and now the cost of the war soaring, what comes next for Israel's economy? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So I think the starting point when you look at Israel's fundamentals as an economy, it was pretty good. 
the debt-to-GDP ratio and parameters like that, they were pretty good. But then when you look um, more specifically at how individuals or businesses were doing, they were starting to struggle. That's my colleague Galit Altstein talking about the status of Israel's economy through the early fall. That's how things were. But then there was the October 7th attack by Hamas and the subsequent war in Gaza. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, 360,000 reservists were called by Israel to serve. That's nearly 4% of Israel's population. And Tamar Sasserdoti from Darrow says her company felt their absence. So like people were afraid to leave the house during COVID, people were afraid to leave the house here in Israel. A lot of changes in the field, you can say. I, I became interim CEO within a day or two, um, and we had 50% of our executive team was also called up to reserve. So we need to make sure that our, our structure, our leadership structure was in place. We had to make sure that our employees had a safe, comfortable place to work for an extended period of time. There was a lot of ambiguity of, you know, where are we going? What's going to happen? How long is this going to take? The war has been going for over three months, and pulling so many people out of the workforce is having an impact on the economy. But recently, the Israeli Defense Force announced that a portion of the reservists are being sent home to return to their families and to their jobs. Tamar told us they've already seen the impact of those decisions at the company she works for, Darrow. So about half of them are back. And in full capacity, and then I'd say another 25% um, are back at like a 50% capacity. So a lot have come back. We, we do expect at some point in the next year for there to be additional absences. We understand that this is not something that's going to be just a three-month stint and that's it, unfortunately. Part of the reason for sending reservists back to work is war is expensive, and the Israeli government is figuring out how to fund it. Israel's GDP was forecast to have fallen 19% in the last quarter of 2023, and the government just passed a budget for 2024 that assumes this war will last for at least the rest of this year. We ask Elite how much the government needs to come up with. The cabinet had already voted on a budget for 2024, but then it needed to be revised to accommodate a $19 billion, which is um, 70 billion shekels. That's the surge in expenditure because of the war. And also at the same time, the government is experiencing revenue loss because of the war. And that is estimated to be um, about $10 billion or 36 billion shekels. So um, the overall uh, amount is, um, when you combine um, these two, is roughly $30 billion that the government now needs to make up for in, in some sort of way. So the deficit, the state deficit, the target of the state deficit was raised to 6.6% of the GDP, which is among Israel's widest this century. It really swelled. And the government did make adjustments in this revised budget, meaning it cut spending uh, in some ways. And um, it also put in place some revenue increasing measures, which to put simply are new taxes. And these all total at about 17 billion shekels to accommodate everything that, that I mentioned. With no clear end in sight to this war, a huge amount of uncertainty also remains for the country's economy. I ask Elite what economic indicators she'll be watching for next. We talked about the state deficit in the budget that was swollen to 6.6% for 2024, and growth is expected to um, go down to 1.6% in 2024. And it's interesting to see 
whether these numbers are sustainable. They're not very optimistic numbers, and all the same deficit during the year could still swell. Growth could still be lower than that 1.6, the finance ministry estimates. And these are things to look out for because they will not only have an impact on future fiscal policy, but also on Israel's monetary policy that um, has to do with the fiscal policy. And they're both affected by one another. All um, three big credit rating agencies have put Israel on some kind of negative um, rating review or negative review watch. I would say that markets have factors, Israel's um, current risk factor. So maybe it won't be such a big change there. And yet symbolically to have Israel's um, sovereign credit rating lowered for the first time, by the way, since it started being rated, would be definitely um, a point in time that would mean something and especially see where it goes from there. So that's another thing to look out for. And the last thing I think I will mention, Israeli high tech is almost too big to fall. As fighting continues and deaths mount, what happens next for Israel's economy is just one part of the story. We'll keep following the fallout of this war in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to The Big Take from Bloomberg News. I'm Sarah Holder. This episode was produced by David Fox. It was edited by Caitlin Kenny and Jordan Fabian. It was mixed by Alex Ugiura and Blake Maples. It was fact-checked by Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Naomi Shaven and Jilda DiCarli. We get editorial direction from Elizabeth Ponzo. Sage Bauman is our executive producer and head of podcasts. Special thanks to Galit Alstein and Israel Bureau Chief Ethan Bronner for the reporting that inspired this episode. You can read Ethan's piece on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for tuning in. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.